germs. Look, I don't know if you guys know it, but you're uh, you're out of toilet paper. Hey, did did you say toilet paper? Oh, they used handfuls of wadded paper back in the twenties. <laughs> I'm happy that you're happy, but the place where you're supposed to have the toilet paper, you got this little shelf with three seashells on it. <laughs> He doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> I can see how that could be confusing. I don't believe it. And that was Sylvester Stallone talking to Sandra Bullock in the 1993 catastrophe of a film, Demolition Man. And I would ask that you in no way take my use of Demolition Man in this particular episode as any kind of endorsement of Demolition Man as a functional piece of cinema. But I will use it today, nevertheless, as an introduction and a metaphor for our much more serious and meaningful discussion of Dr. Maitland Jones. For those of you in education who may have been um, taking a sabbatical in a cave somewhere... Dr. Jones is an organic chemistry professor who had an esteemed career at Princeton and sort of as part of his retirement in an effort to keep a foot in the classroom, it seems, took a job as an adjunct at NYU. Dr. Jones was teaching Intro to Organic Chemistry, and about 85 of his 350 NYU students wrote a petition to the administration complaining about Dr. Jones, specifically with respect to to his rigor and his teaching methods. And even though the students did not ask for Dr. Jones to be fired, and I want to emphasize that point again, the students did not ask for Dr. Jones to be fired. Nevertheless, the administration summarily and rather expeditiously notified him that his contract would not be renewed. And this has sparked quite the discussion of academic rigor, college standards, Generation Z, and a whole host of surrounding issues that we're going to get to today on pedagogy. In fact, this will probably be a two-part episode, with this first part's focus specifically on what happened with Dr. Jones at NYU. And I want to delve into that controversy because, as usual, with these kinds of events where the outside world and the media pays attention to something that happens in academia— We don't really get an in-depth look at the story. In fact, we are rather relegated to just hearing the surface discussion. And it's important for me to take you beyond that because there are some very important things to be wrestled with here. Things that we as educators truly have to consider deeply and reflect upon and plan for in education. And I'm not going to be able to offer any grand wisdom about what we can do, but maybe I'll have a nugget or two along the way. Nevertheless, this discussion is one to which we truly have to pay attention. In the next episode on this topic, I will look more specifically at the research around academic rigor. What is it? How are we talking about it? How should we talk about it? What role should it play in our teaching practice and our institutions? And rigor will serve as the continuation of this discussion because rigor is really one of the factors that is at the very heart of this discussion about Dr. Jones and why NYU failed to renew his contract. And it's something that we have to contend with better in higher education. What does better mean? Well, you'll have to wait till next episode to find out. Before I get to any of that, however, I want to speak to why pedagogy has been on a little bit of hiatus. And that's because I have been exceptionally busy 
all-consumingly busy, investing all of my time and energy and effort and experience, transitioning what was the Critical Thinking Initiative into the Critical Thinking Institute, which you can visit at thectinstitute.com. That's thectinstitute.com. The Institute, of course, will continue to support educators and academia as it has been with podcasts like this and with its online program that educators can assign for students that teaches students about critical thinking, lets them work outside of class, learning about critical thinking, and constructing an essay born of that critical thinking. The Institute now also has an additional focus, and I think it's very exciting because what I'm doing there is something that simply does not exist anywhere else in the world, not in this form, not in this depth, and I don't think of this caliber. Through the Institute, I'm launching a program called Brighter Minds, Better Futures, and this is the first program of its kind that's extended, dedicated, research-driven critical thinking instruction for everyone 10 and up. Maybe even for those a little younger than 10, if they are more adept, but certainly for any kids starting around the age of 10, and really through teens, young adults, and really, and I'm jamming on the air quotes here, kids of any age. What I realized, and also at the behest of some friends of mine, is that no matter how many educators I reach with messages about how to teach critical thinking, the effect size on kids and students and young adults will be a drop in the bucket relative to the number of people in the world who need critical thinking training. And if you're like me and you look around the world a little bit today, you might agree that we don't just need a few more people with strong critical thinking skills. We might need a lot more people with strong critical thinking skills, like a lot more people who really need training in how to exercise their brains so as to become adept at real critical thinking practice. Brighter Minds, Better Futures works like this. Every week, it drops two videos. Each video is only about five to 10 minutes long, very short. The first video is an animated lesson. It's a discussion between an anthropomorphized brain and some kind of young person of indescript age and so forth. And as you've probably already deduced, the brain is teaching the young person about critical thinking. Now, when I say that, I anticipate that, especially among you, my audience of educators, a number of concerns emerge. Foremost of those might be whether or not it's really possible to teach critical thinking well online, if not also to younger people. And let me assure you, it absolutely is. Because one of the things I'm most proud about about this program is how easily and simply it breaks down critical thinking into easily digestible nuggets. By breaking it down into bite-sized nuggets and organizing those nuggets very carefully, critical thinking can be taught in all of its glorious depth and complexity to anyone. Because each individual lesson, though ultimately accumulating and adding up into something that is rich and thoughtful and complex and fully representative of the intricate mechanizations of the human mind, 
nevertheless, are also very simple, very easy to learn, very digestible. They're easy enough for anyone to get their head around, even kids. Second, you might be concerned that it's boring. And I assure you, if you watch the videos, and I'll tell you how to get there in a second, it's actually really fun and entertaining. Third, you might be concerned about whether or not critical thinking is really something universal enough to be presented online, or whether or not it has to be done in very specific contexts. Well, let me assure you, because my approach is based on so much peer-reviewed research and development, which I've taught so many educators for years, functions based on how the brain naturally thinks rather than more abstract notions of critical thinking, It presents an understanding of critical thinking that applies to every single aspect of everyone's life, from making better decisions in life, to academics, to reading and writing, to how to socialize, how to contend with social media, how to contend with news, and so on and so forth. So that's the first video, an animated discussion between a brain and a kid that's fun and simple and clear. The second video that goes with it, unfortunately, is a video of me taking just a couple of minutes every week to explain the research and rationale behind the animated lesson, as well as what parents, if they're doing this as an experience with their kids, can do to augment that experience for their kids. But guess what? Parents and all adults are going to get just as much, if not more, out of this than their kids. Because, and you all know this, kids aren't the only ones who need to learn about critical thinking. Adults, on the whole, have not secured in-depth understanding of how to define critical thinking, what it really is, and how to exercise it better in their own lives. That's not their fault. There's no reason that most adults should acquire this ability without being taught But for the most part, they haven't been instructed in it. And so they're going to get at least as much, maybe more out of this. Just as those of you educators listening, I believe, will also be able to get a tremendous amount out of this program in understanding the depth of critical thinking, how to conceptualize it, and how to bring it into your teaching practice. But as I noted earlier, I developed Brighter Minds, Better Futures, not with you educators in mind, though I hope you take a look at it, because I really believe in what it can offer, but with everyone in mind, including and perhaps especially kids. Because not only do they need critical thinking skills in order to be successful in their lives individually, especially since, as I've discussed before, studies have shown that critical thinking skills are more important than intelligence when it comes to making effective decisions in real life but also because, and I feel so strongly about this, whatever problems our world is facing today, we need critical thinkers to be able to solve those problems. And not just the problems of today, but the problems our children or the young people of today are going to face tomorrow are going to be at least equally challenging. And we're not going to be there to help them through it. They're going to need to solve those problems for themselves and hopefully create a better world. And I'm confident that those of you who've been listening for a while know that the reason that I'm a zealot about all of this critical thinking nonsense is in fact that critical thinking is perhaps the most important thing we need in the world 
in order to make the world better, in order to solve the problems that we're facing, in order to give everyone a better life. And so I truly hope you'll support this effort and take a look at it. And more importantly, I hope that if you know anyone with kids, if you have family members or friends with kids, that you also take a look at the site at the ctinstitute.com and recommend that they also take a look. Right now we're in pre-launch, which means you can go to the site, you can learn all about the program as well as view the first few lessons. And we're also offering an annual subscription to the program at 35% off the annual rate. But those of you who are Hedagogy listeners can take an extra 15% off with the code Hedagogy, which will bring it to a whopping 50% off, more than I think we ever could afford to do in the future. And you can feel absolutely encouraged to pass the code Hedagogy on to anyone you know. Because this is a social entrepreneurial effort, the mission remains the same, which is to have as many people thinking critically in the world as possible. And the best place to start with that, of course, is with kids and families and turn that into a wellspring for society. So to wrap this up, the program is Brighter Minds, Better Futures at the ctinstitute.com, which is the Critical Thinking Institute. Please go take a look. Please recommend it to everyone. And remember the code HEDAGOGY so that you or anyone you know can get that full 50% off, which is not a sustainable price for us moving forward. But I believe so strongly in the word of mouth that this program will receive that I want to make sure we have a strong core group of tribe members once the program is fully launched. Okay, so let's get back to Dr. Maitland Jones, professor of organic chemistry, who was, as I noted at the outset of the podcast, rather summarily fired from NYU because roughly 85 of his 350 students submitted a petition concerned about how hard the course was and about his demeanor as an educator. And the fact that NYU ended his contract because his course was reputed to be so hard immediately sparked criticisms of the diminishing standards in academia. And I'm quoting the Chronicle of Higher Education article, NYU's firing of a chemistry professor caused a furor. Here's what he has to say about it by Tom Bartlett, which was from October 10th, 2022. The article writes, quote, Everyone has a take on the dismissal of Maitland Jones Jr. An op-ed writer for the New York Post believes it, quote, should frighten every American. End quote. A headline on NBC News's website declares that it, quote, shows how low colleges have sunk, end quote. Over at CNN, a columnist worries about a, quote, dangerous precedent, end quote. Meanwhile, a Los Angeles Times contributor has a message for students, quote, you don't get a grade, you have to earn it, end quote. And so, having read those quotes, I think it is fairly clear that the public's take on this, at least as represented by the editorials in sundry periodicals, is an admonition of NYU and a warning for the world about the diminishing standards in education. Now, there might be a degree of validity in that criticism of NYU, if not of higher education or education as a whole, at least in the United States. But let's see if this really adds up to that in this particular instance. And that's why I think digging into this issue with Dr. Jones is particularly important. Because it's getting all of this public attention, and it's being cast in a certain way. But is it really fair? 
And so I want to look at this from a number of different frames. We're going to look at it from the frame of the administration. We want to look at it from the frame of Dr. Jones, and we want to look at it from the frame of the students. Since Jones himself sits at the center of this particular controversy, let's take a look at Jones first and foremost. First of all, it's very important to note that Jones, who is 84 now, not only had a very distinguished career at Princeton for I think it was about 40 years, but he also wrote one of the most prominent textbooks on organic chemistry, which runs about 1,300 pages long. He also was a pioneer of new methods for teaching organic chemistry, methods that leaned more on problem-based learning, while at the same time leaning away from lecture and rote memorization. How successful were those methods? I have absolutely no idea. But I think it is revealing to us an educator who, at the very least, is making an effort to try to find ways to teach that are engaging and interesting and successful for students. And I think there are a few other pieces of this puzzle with respect to Dr. Jones that are important to point out. With respect to the grade distribution in the course, since its rigor certainly has come under scrutiny as being excessive, Jones noted that about 60% of the grades in the previous course were A's and B's. Before the days of grade inflation, 60% A's and B's was a very reasonable distribution of grades. It's not necessarily considered to be as such anymore, but I'm guessing that when Dr. Jones started teaching, it sure was. And he also noted that at the previous course, only about 19 students actually earned F's, and those students were then allowed retroactive withdrawals. Additionally, I want to note, and I think this is really interesting, that when Jones was asked if courses like organic chemistry should be considered weed-out courses to weed out the weaker students, and if those courses were still important in academia, Jones said, quote, I deeply dislike the notion that, you know, we teach these courses in order to weed people out. We don't. We teach these courses in order to bring them in, end quote. And so Jones here, who I think loves organic chemistry and wants to create more great organic chemists, is not out to get students. He's not out to be a hard ass for the sake of being a hard ass. While it seems that he probably certainly has certain standards that he feels should be retained, he nevertheless doesn't seem like a guy who's out to get students and just be a jerk. In fact, he's quite gracious to the students. When Bartlett, in interviewing him for the Chronicle article, asked about whether or not the students who wrote the petition simply needed to step up and take more personal responsibility, Jones was actually quite gracious. He said, quote, they're young people, and they're not very experienced in the world. How old are they? They're 18 and 19, end quote. In other words, he's saying, look, let's give them a break. Now, Jones is much more critical of the administration, and perhaps with some good reason, but I'll get back to that in a minute. But first, let's take a look at what this jigsaw of puzzle pieces has put together, which initially at least, in terms of Jones's character and his intention and his desire as an educator, seems like someone who is making an earnest effort, seems like he's serious about teaching organic chemistry, seems like he wants students to learn organic chemistry, and seems like he wants to create more organic chemists. Again, he said, Quote, we teach these courses in order to bring them in, end quote. Bring them in, I believe, to the sciences. Bring them in, I believe, to organic chemistry. 
But there's another piece to this puzzle about Dr. Jones. And to this, I turn to the Daily Princetonian, which published an article titled, Alumni Respond to Professor Emeritus Maitland Jones Jr.'s Termination from NYU. And the article writes, quote, that Jones at one point, quote, pointed to a smaller petition that was brought directly to him the year prior as an appropriate way for students to voice their complaints. Following that petition, he said, he made some adjustments. And thus, it is very clear that Mr. Jones's teaching persona and pedagogy had previously run into conflict with students, students who felt strongly enough to craft a petition about it. In other words, despite perhaps his best of intentions, and I believe his intentions probably were noble as far as I can speculate, whatever he was doing as an educator, whatever his pedagogy might have been, whatever his persona might have been, it clearly was creating friction with not just current students, but recent ones. And it doesn't seem as though Dr. Jones adjusted his practice accordingly. Now, whether or not he should have done that is a much bigger question. But nevertheless, he didn't, because it appears as though, although he made some adjustments once, he perhaps did not adjust enough insofar as remedying student complaints. Again, whether or not he should have placated their concerns is a different question, but I think it's worth noting that this is someone whose teaching practice clearly was meeting complaints from the students in the past, so this was not the first time that it arose as an issue, and so whatever he was doing probably was not working on all levels, certainly not for all students. That doesn't make him a bad person, and it doesn't even necessarily make him a bad educator, but nevertheless, it does reveal some of the complexity of the situation that's before us. And to round out Dr. Jones a little bit more as well, it's worth voicing some of his frustration with the students for not seizing opportunities that were available to them with respect to passing or excelling in the course. And in the Daily Princetonian, he elaborates on that. He says, quote, I can stand up there in the front of the class and count the house. And when you get to the middle of the semester, it's below 50%. And I saw that if you have recorded lectures, as we had to do during COVID times, you, of course, get a headcount from the Zoom app. It's discouraging to see how few people actually listen to those recorded lectures. Nobody went to office hours. We had them every week, and we'd get between three and eight people. Those folks at office hours were not the ones who needed to be there. They were the people getting hundreds on the exams. And so clearly, Jones himself is frustrated at the student engagement. And he sees that there are, and I think can document, in fact, that there are opportunities available to students of which the students certainly were not taking advantage. And have we not all seen this to some degree in at least some students who do not help themselves? We have class, but they don't come to class. There are online lectures, and they don't watch the online lectures. There are office hours, and they don't attend office hours. And then they become frustrated that they are not doing well enough in our courses. At which point, don't we want to say to them, no shit, what did you expect to happen? As you'll see, this matter of coming to class and attending lectures is not as clear-cut as it might seem right now, but I'd be remiss if I did not note Dr. Jones's frustration with it. So that concludes my little part initially on Dr. Jones himself. Now let's take a look at the student. This concludes part one of Hedagogy's foray into Dr. Jones and NYU. Join me next week for part two.